I need to tell you, first of all, uh, you know, we lost half our people in the summer. And we, I, didn't, I didn't really know what the fall was going to be like. You know, we never really lost that many people before. We, we always lose a half, pardon me, a quarter to a third, but we've never lost half before. And I just have to tell you how much I've loved this fall. Um, I've really felt the Spirit of God here. And uh, we, uh, Karen and I, love you very much. And thank you for letting us uh, minister to you. And uh, I'm going to preach hard tonight. Uh, is that okay? <laughs> um, so, yeah, I'm going to preach about something you probably don't hear very much anymore uh, in your home churches. Maybe you do. I hope you do. Uh, it's a needed message. It's an important message. It's a message that frequently is edited from the body of Christ in the modern church. Uh, my introduction is going to be a little longer than normal, but don't be alarmed. I won't preach any longer than normal, okay? So, um, but uh, yeah, just prayerfully hear the Word of God tonight. Um, Hebrews 10.31 tells us that it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Um, as the famous preacher, theologian A.W. Pink said, God has made no attempt to conceal the facts concerning His wrath. He is not ashamed to make it known that vengeance and fury belong to Him. God's anger, His indignation, His fury, and His wrath are mentioned over 400 times. In the scriptures, uh, more references than to his love and tenderness. God doesn't just mention his wrath, he describes his wrath. And I did a cursory review this week, and uh, it's by no means exhaustive, but let me just tell you some of the phrases I discovered with respect to God's wrath in the scriptures. God talks about his burning anger, his great indignation, his blazing wrath, his fierce wrath, his great uh, wrath, his wrathful hostility. Uh, he talks about the flood of his anger being unleashed. He talks about being filled and full of wrath. He mentions his rod of wrath, his, uh, the fire of his wrath. He mentions pouring out his burning indignation. He talks about inflicting his wrath. Uh, he talks about accomplishing his anger against his enemies. I'm just going to share some verses with you, okay? Um, Jeremiah chapter 10, verse 10. But the Lord is, is the true God. He is the living God and the everlasting King. At His wrath the earthquakes and the nations cannot endure His indignation. The prophet Nahum, chapter 1, verse 6 says, Who can stand before God's indignation? Who can endure the burning of His anger? His wrath is poured out like fire. Ezekiel 8.18 God says, Therefore I indeed shall deal in wrath. My eye will have no pity nor shall I spare. And though they cry in my ears with a loud voice yet I shall not listen to them. Many of you are familiar with Isaiah chapter 13. God says, I am coming with my instruments of indignation to execute my anger. Wail, for the day of the Lord is near. It will come as destruction from the Almighty. Therefore, all hands will fall limp and every man's heart 
will melt. You know, I listen to some of these guys sometime on the news and on the internet, these guys railing at God. and When he splits the sky, every heart will melt. Every heart will melt. He goes on, And they will be terrified. Behold, the day of the Lord is coming, cruel with fury and burning with anger to make the land a desolation, and I will exterminate its sinners from it, says the Lord. I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked uh, for their iniquity. I will also put an end to the arrogance of the proud. Therefore, I shall make the heavens tremble, and the earth will be shaken from its place at the fury of the Lord of hosts in the day of my burning Anger. Nahum 1 2, God says, uh, He is a jealous, avenging, and wrathful God. Psalm 7 11, God says, He is angry with the wicked every day. Psalm 5 5, God says, He hates all who do iniquity. Iniquity just being wickedness or evil or sin. And of course, you guys know the well known text, Revelation 19 15, which speaks of Jesus. Jesus. Uh, will tread the winepress of the fierce wrath of God Almighty. In his famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, uh, Jonathan Edwards comments on Revelation 19.15. Listen to what he says. Edwards says, If it had only been said the wrath of God, the words would have implied that which is infinitely dreadful. But the Bible says the fierce wrath of God. Who can utter or conceive what such expressions carry in them? Oh, what dreadful, inexpressible, inconceivable depth of misery shall the sinner be subject to? Edwards goes on to remind us that, uh, that those who persist in making themselves the enemies of Jehovah will be subject to eternal, infinite, and omnipotent wrath. After, and after millions and millions of ages of wrath, it will have only just begun. This is the teaching of the Bible. The Bible is clear. God's eternal, infinite, omnipotent wrath will be poured out forever in hell. Yes, I know there are many churches who uh, uh, deny that these days. Many so-called churches who deny the truth of eternal punishment. I know that uh, there are many who simply edit it out of their preaching. They simply don't preach it. It's simply uh, taken out. And it's not taught or preached to the body of Christ. But Jesus taught it. And you know this, if you've read your Bible, you know that there's more about hell from the lips of Jesus than from any other source in all of Scripture. Jesus used words like this. He, said, he talked about eternal punishment eternal fire, unquenchable fire. He talks, he talks about being salted with fire. He talks about outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. He talks about the worm that does not die and the fire that is not quenched. God's wrath is eternal. It is terrible. And it is deserved. The body of Christ needs to understand these truths. We don't need to run from these truths. We need to defend these truths. God has been infinitely offended at the haughty, arrogant sin of man. And Debbie Pink is right. This is not an obscure, vague, unclear, minor, veiled biblical truth. God is in our face about this. He is a God of wrath and He will judge His enemies. This is 
the biblical truth. Let me just stop and ask, if you don't mind, uh, how many of you have ever heard this from a pulpit anywhere? A couple. Okay. That's good. Praise God. Praise God. There's, a few, there's still a few men in the pulpits with integrity, right? Not many anymore. But there still are a few that have some integrity and handle the Word of God with integrity. There's, there's we need to understand these truths. We need to preach them and teach them and learn them. You know, possibly some of you uh, in here have been in church uh, uh, much of your life. You've never heard it taught. You've never heard that God is a God of wrath and that God will judge His enemies. He's a God of vengeance. You've never heard that. You've never heard it. And uh, you may be deceived in thinking that, that God is simply uh, on the love side of the equation. That's all you've ever heard about God. That's all you know about God. Well, if that's true, you have a caricature of God in your mind. You do not have a biblical view of Him. You may have some wishful or contrived caricature of God. God is not, uh, a, he's not sentimental. He's not indulgent. Uh, he's not like a lenient grandfather. He's not duped by religious showmanship. Uh, he's not pacified by religious activity. In fact, we know he hates rote, brain-dead, heart-dead religion. He tells us that in the Bible. Uh, he does not wink at sin. He does not wink at sin. In fact, he hates the arrogant disregard of his law. The Bible says that God is unapproachably holy. He is righteous. He is fearsome. He is terrifying. He is the consuming fire. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 29. Beloved, we must have a biblical view of God. God says, Deuteronomy 32, 41, I will render vengeance to my enemies and I will repay those who hate me, says the Almighty. That brings me to the, the second reason we need to, to know these truths. Uh, we don't need to put them on a shelf somewhere and never talk about them. There's another reason we need to, to be aware and, and be familiar with these truths and learn these truths and meditate on these truths because we never need to forget what Jesus is doing on the cross. If you don't understand that God is angry at the sin of man, you have no idea why Jesus is hanging on that cross and suffering and dying. It makes no sense. If you don't understand wrath, you do not understand the fullness of grace. You do not understand the fullness of grace. So that Deuteronomy 32:41 passage says, God says, I'm going to settle the score with all my enemies. He says, I'm going to settle up with all those who hate me. Well, who are his enemies and who hate God? What does Romans tell us about natural man? That's you and me. That's you and me apart from Jesus Christ, right? Romans chapter 1, verse 30, the natural man is a hater of God. Romans chapter 5, verse 10, we're enemies of God by our own premeditated rebellion and sin against Him. But why do we need to preach this and understand this? Why do we need to know that we deserved infinite and omnipotent wrath? We deserved burning fury and blazing indignation. We deserved condemnation and an eternity in hell. Friends, if you don't understand that you deserve that, you will never fully worship Jesus Christ as we are intended to worship Him. You have to understand what He has saved you from and what you know, the fullness of all that He was doing 
on that cross. I'll give you an illustration. One night about 10 years ago, I was leading a Bible study on the... Uh, somewhat excitedly says, I get it. You know, I love being in the ministry because every once in a while you get to see the light bulb come on over somebody's head. It's really cool when it happens. I really love that part of this, part of this work. Uh, she goes, I get it. You know, she'd been brought up in the liberal church. She had never been taught about the wrath of God. Never. She just thought God was love. She'd been taught one dimension of Him, one facet of Him. But if we actually read our Bibles, we see that He is multifaceted, Right? He is multifaceted. She says, I finally get it. I finally understand what the cross is about. Jesus is taking my wrath. If you don't know about this, you can't really even begin to worship Jesus Christ for all that He's done for you. You have some vague notion that, yeah, yeah, maybe I did some bad stuff and, okay, well, Jesus took care of that. Listen, friends, the wrath of God was resting upon your head for all eternity. And as Jonathan Edwards says, the omnipotent wrath of God will crush the sinner in hell for a billion eternities. Friends, if you don't understand wrath, you cannot understand grace. You do not understand the cross. She says, I get it. I see it. I see why Jesus is bleeding on that cross for me. Romans 5.10, while we were enemies of God... uh, We were what? What does it say? While we were the enemies of God, what happened? We were reconciled. We were reconciled to Him through the death of Jesus. Gospel for the born-again Christian. We were enemies of God with, with wrath resting upon us, but now we're what? We're we're co heirs. We're sons and we're daughters. Listen, if you can't worship about that, there's something bad. You're not understanding the gospel. If you can't worship, if you can't get on your face and worship this awesome gospel, this awesome Savior, I know it gets hard sometimes. But friends, I don't care how hard it gets in your life. We ought to be able to get on our face and worship this awesome Savior. We deserved omnipotent, eternal, infinite wrath. But what we get is omnipotent, eternal, infinite love. We are sons. We are our daughters. We are co-heirs. We are co-heirs. And as we've been talking about the last few weeks, Paul is continuing to defend the gospel in this letter to the Colossians. Uh, again, I'll say it to you again, it's the, pro- the Protestant cry from the Protestant Reformation. Paul says, don't you dare add anything to the biblical gospel. He says, we are, our salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, Period. Don't you dare tack your religion on. This is the message of the Apostle Paul. This is the, this is the biblical message. Don't you dare add your man-made religion onto the gospel of Jesus Christ. And uh, we've been saying that whether Catholic or Protestant, Christ plus gospels are always wrong. They're always wrong. If anybody's piling junk onto the gospel of Jesus Christ, it's wrong. It's Wrong. I know this doesn't land easily on some of your ears, but false gospels are always demonic in origin. They are always a manifestation of the spirit of Antichrist. And Paul says, uh, the Apostle Paul says, Christ is God. He's all you need. You don't need a bunch of religion. All you need is Jesus Christ. That's it. That's what this letter is about. 
That's what the letter Colossians is about. And I told you last week, it may be the highest form of blasphemy. You have to have something, you have to have Jesus plus something else to be saved. I think it might be the highest form of blasphemy on the planet. Paul says, if any man preaches a gospel different than my gospel, different than the gospel I've delivered to you, he says, let that man be accursed. I'm going to pick up in verse 19, Colossians 1. Um, we left off here last time. I uh, just I wanted to read it because it flows. If, if we read it, it flows a little better. Plus, it summarizes what we talked about last week. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in Him. Jesus Christ is God. He is God with us. He is Emmanuel. cross and don't you dare add religion to him he is sufficient for saving his people all that he's done on the cross is sufficient don't you dare tack religion onto the uh, up onto the gospel of jesus don't you dare do that look at verse 20 to 23 and through him through jesus uh, to, to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace, big word, important word in this text, through the blood, another important word of his cross, uh, through him I say whether things on earth or things in heaven, and although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you, get this, before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. We were enemies, and now we're holy. We're blameless, and we're beyond reproach. Verse 23, if indeed you continue uh, in the faith, firmly established and steadfast, and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, was made a minister. You deserved wrath. But if you're born again, if you're in Christ, if you love Christ, if you're in relationship with Christ, the wrath is gone. Jesus took it. Jesus took it. That's why He's stripped bare. That's why He's scourged. That's why He's nailed to a tree. He's taking the wrath that I deserve upon Himself. Upon Himself. Through His finished work, we are reconciled to the Father. No religion need be added. No works need be added. No sacraments need be added. Once for all, what did He say on the cross? What did He say? It's finished. I've saved my people. I've saved my people. It is done. Brothers and sisters, we are saved. Don't let any man tell you anything. Don't let any man give you a list of things you've got to do to be saved. If you're in relationship with Christ, you're a son or daughter of God and you're on your way to Him. And your life is only going to get infinitely better. <laughs> the day you die will be your best. It will be your best. I remember D.L. Moody said one time, he said, man, someday, sometime you're going to read, one day you're going to read in the paper that I'm dead. He said, don't you believe it. He said, I'll be more alive that day than I've ever been. <laughs> and that's the truth. That's the truth for the believer. 
So what does it mean to be reconciled? What does this term mean? The Greek word translated uh, reconcile, it means to bring into a state of harmony. That's what the word peace, you see it right there in the text. The word peace means to establish harmony. By our willful rebellion against God, we made ourselves enemies of God. But through the cross, Jesus has made harmony with God possible for all who will will repent and believe and place their faith in Christ. No works need be added. Place your faith in Christ. Receive Him as Lord and Savior. The wrath is gone. And an eternity of infinite love and beauty and unspeakable pleasures at the right hand of God are yours. It's an awesome gospel, man. I don't know how, I don't know how anybody can't get excited about this gospel. I don't know. I, I don't, you know, John Elders talks about... Uh, he talks about you walk into your average church in America and you find a bunch of bored people. Man, that's wrong. If you're bored in church, something is wrong. Man, we should, we should be the antithesis of bored people. Man, we're on our way. We're on our way to the Father. We are on our way. And I like, I like this Greek word here, translated reconcile. You know, it's not the normal word for, for reconcile. It's actually, it's a hyper, it's, it's hyper reconcile. There's a, there's a preposition added to it. It's like uber reconcile. Ultra, you know, utterly reconcile. Completely, totally reconcile. This is what Jesus has done. Don't you dare add religion to it. Don't you dare add religion to it. How were we reconciled? Was it religion and legalism and, and wrote prayers and sacraments and good works? Was it, was it that? No, it's by, what does it say in the text? By the blood of Christ, we are reconciled. By the blood of Jesus, we are reconciled. I love how MacArthur, listen to me just a minute. Uh, him last week, and he kind of unpacks what the blood does kind of unpacks what the blood of Jesus did on the cross. This is very brief, but I think it's very informative. Listen to this. By the blood of Jesus, we, we, uh, we, uh, we are justified. We stood before God accused Christ. We are declared righteous. Amen? Uh, as born-again Christians, we, we are redeemed. We stood before God as a slave, but in Christ, we are set free. We were a slave to sin and death. Born-again Christians are forgiven. We stood before Christ a debtor, but in Christ that debt has been paid. Born-again Christians are reconciled. We stood before God an enemy. I've already mentioned this, but in Christ we become His friends. Born-again Christians are, uh, are adopted. We stood before God alienated, but in Christ we are sons and daughters How can Christianity be some little piece of your life? Christian, I'm just asking you. How could it just be some little piece of your life? If that, in fact, is what it is in your life. How can it be that? It's not intended to be that. It's, 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 it's just, it's so unspeakably awesome. How can we not love and worship this God with all that we are and all that we have? How can we not? It's irresistible to me. And yes, I fail every day, but it's still irresistible to me. What a beautiful Savior. What an awesome gospel. As we talked about last week, Satan is always seeking to twist the meaning of of Scripture. You remember that over in Matthew chapter 4, you know, he misquoted Scripture to Jesus. You may remember that, that incident. 
context, every false Christian denomination and cult always take Scripture out of context. Last week we talked about how the Jehovah's Witnesses will take uh, Colossians 1.16 out of context and try to make the case that Jesus is not God, He's a created being. Again, what did we say? Scripture always interprets Scripture. If we just do a superficial uh, reading of the Bible, we understand that that cannot be the case. We also looked at the Greek and saw that that was not the case. But there's another verse here, uh, Colossians 1.20, that is, is, that is abused. Look what it says. It says uh, that uh, through Him to reconcile all things. Guess who jumps on that verse? Guess who loves that? The universalists. That's right, the universalists. Now, what does a universalist teach? They teach, well, ultimately, everybody's going to be saved. That's what they teach. That's, and they use this verse as a proof text. Ultimately, everybody's going to be saved. Well, if we just superficially read our Bibles, what do we know to be true? That ain't going to happen, right? That ain't going to happen. If we just have average comprehension skills, that is not going to happen. And so the universalists like to use this verse and try to uh, make a case for universalism. Beloved, don't let Satan, the false denominations, and the cults proof text you into error. God has given us His Word so we won't be deceived. We're supposed to do what? What are we supposed to do with it? Know it. Let me ask you. Are you giving yourself to know the Word of God? That you might be mighty in the Scriptures. That you might be mighty in the Scriptures. To share, with your, to share with your spouse. To share with your children. To share with your co-workers. To, to encourage the, the people in your church with a Scripture. You know, We're to be mighty in the Scriptures. So we can't be deceived. But also so we can edify uh, the flock around us. You remember what Paul told Timothy, 2 Timothy 2.15. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, handling accurately the word of truth. So what is the Holy Spirit saying to us here in verse 20? Christ is reconciling all things to Himself. I know you probably already know, but, but just to do a thorough, uh, to lay the groundwork, I need to just tell you that in sin, when man sinned, the rebellion of the creature against the Creator is so unspeakably heinous, so unspeakably heinous that the consequences of that uh, have thrown the created order uh, under the curse. Okay? Under the curse. I presume most of you know this. The, 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 re, the, the result to the created order has been cataclysmic. Why earthquakes? Why tsunamis? Why hurricanes? Why tornadoes? The created order is in convulsion uh, due to the sin curse. The created order has been subject to corruption and futility. Anxiously longs and eagerly awaits to be set free from its slavery to corruption. The whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. I can remember it. I couldn't find it. I looked for it. But I remember reading one theologian sometime back and he personifies the earth, right? In his... His illustration, he personifies the earth and he basically says the earth hates having to bear the weight of arrogant, haughty, sinful men who con continuously rebel against the Creator. And I think, I think that's an apt, I think that is an apt uh, portrayal. The earth 
is in lows to bear the weight of unrepentant, sinful men. This is the Holy Spirit teaching us in 120. I said all that to say this. Not only are born-again Christians new creatures, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, the created order will also what? Will also be what? New. It'll be brand new. We see it several times in the New Testament. There will be a new heaven and a new earth. Christ is reconciling all things to Himself, namely redeemed men and the whole of the created order, not fallen angels and unrepentant sinner, uh, sinners or unrepentant men. This is not a text that teaches universalism. I just want to make sure we understand that. Scripture must interpret Scripture. Verse 20. We were formerly alienated and hostile in mind. We know the Scripture before friendship with the world is what? Does anybody remember? We did, we did James last year. Hostility. Hostility toward Father's not in us. Romans 8, 7. The mindset on the flesh is hostile toward God. If we are pursuing friendship with the world, if we love it or anything in it more than God, if we set our mind uh, principally on earthly and fleshly things, the Bible is clear we are still the enemies of God. We've not really met Him yet. We've not met Him yet. And I know I could get a testimony from every born-again believer in here if you have met Jesus Christ. There's nothing you love more than Jesus Christ. That's just the truth. If you've really met Him, <laughs> there's nothing on the planet that compares to Him. Nothing. If you have met the living Savior, there is no competitor for the primacy of our affections. You can't love Jesus lukewarmly. It is an oxymoron. It is not possible. We know how He feels about that. We're either wholly in love with Him or we don't know Him at all. That's just how it is as a Christian. That's just how it works. That's just how it works. You know, you just can't help but loving Him. I mean, you can't help You can't help but falling uh, more and more in love with Him all the time. So look at verse 22. He says, hey, in Christ we'll be holy and, and blameless and uh, beyond reproach. In Jesus Christ, His holiness becomes our holiness. His blamelessness becomes our blamelessness. His righteousness is imputed to the born-again believer. How can you not love the Gospel? How can you not love the Gospel? In 2 Corinthians 5.21 He made Him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. Beloved, you were an God, you were child, but now you're a son or a daughter. Now you're holy. Now you're blameless. Now you're be beyond reproach in Christ. <laughs> you know, I say this a lot. I mean, I understand the theological ramifications of this, but you know, this room, there ought to be 10,000 people trying to get in here. <laughs> I mean, not because I'm preaching, but because I'm preaching this. And this is the best news that has ever fallen on the ears of man. And it's treated with such disdain and hostility and even lethargy by people who call themselves Christians. I don't understand that. 
I simply don't understand that. I've never understood that. I, did, I understood it when I was just a religious man. I understood it then. But then when God, you know, when He came in and He, and he, and he, and he put that heart of flesh in there and He, he borns me again, when He did that, it's like, man, all bets are off. Keep your religion. Keep your religion. Jesus is awesome. He's all I need. He's all I want for my salvation. I don't know why there's not 10,000 people. Well, I do too. I preach too hard for one thing. You remember the rhetorical question the Holy Spirit asking... against the elect who can nobody can why because jesus is our savior jesus is our mediator jesus is our lamb jesus no one can bring a charge against the elect no one can do it romans 8 30 we talked about it a couple of weeks ago we have been predestined we have been called we have been justified we have been glorified it is finished it is done we are god's belong to him we are gods not we are gods we are his okay <laughs> we are his listen friends if you go if you're going to stand before god with your religion there's no doubt satan's going to show up and he's going to make an accusation against you there's no doubt he's going to do that he's going to show up If you're not relying only on Jesus Christ, if you've been hijacked somewhere along the line by religion, then Satan has a charge against you. But if you're just simply looking to Jesus, you are omnipotently justified and that will never change. That can never, ever change. Hebrews 2.3, this awesome salvation. How shall we escape if we neglect this awesome salvation? How could we... lost in here tonight man if you don't know christ man you know you've just been just, you just kind of wandered in you made a mistake you wish you hadn't come now i mean whatever the deal is if you don't know christ man you need to come talk to me i'd be happy to sit down and talk with you about it you need him you need him now you need him immediately you need him urgent urgently don't waste another day don't waste another day you need to come to christ for how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? And Paul says, man, we're going to be holy and blameless and above reproach if what? What does the text say? If what? If we do religion, what does it say? If what? If indeed you continue in the faith. What's this about? Perseverance. We've talked about it a lot. If you continue in the faith, you will be holy. Saying it's just that simple gospel, Christ crucified, salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. We must continue, we must persevere. You know, in the Revelation, there are those nine times it talks about, man, if you overcome, you're going to get all this stuff. Go read the Revelation, it's awesome. A lot of in chapter two there. If you're an overcomer, he's just talking about if you persevere, if you continue in the faith, that's what Paul is saying. If we continue in the faith. Firmly established. God's exhortation to us to be firmly established and steadfast, not moved away from the hope of the gospel that 
we heard God is exhorting us to know the gospel and to hold to it steadfastly. Okay, I just want to close uh, with this illustration. This is what it looks like when you get some small sense of reconciliation. I think this is what it looks like when you get some small, some small sense of all that Jesus has done for us on that cross. So if you want to, you can turn with me to Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7. The woman in this text, she is a prostitute. She is a harlot. Body for money. She probably can't spell reconciliation, but let me tell you, brothers and sisters, she gets it. She gets what reconciliation is all about. She gets it. She knows who she is. She's done. Herself. She knows nation in hell. She knows all of that. She knows it. Untouchable, less unlovable than outcast in every religion. She knows that no man or God would ever want her or no man or God could ever love her. She would never have a groom. She could never have a savior. But wait. I love this text. I love this text. There is one who loves her. There is one who has come for her. There is one who is willing to die for her. There is one who will be her groom. He is the God-man. Not just any man. He's the God-man. Luke chapter 7, verse 36. Now, one of the Pharisees was requesting him to dine with him. And Jesus entered the Pharisee's house and reclined at chapter 7. And behold, there was a woman in the city who was a sinner. This is just New Testament code. She was a prostitute. And when she learned that Jesus was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster vial of perfume, verse 38, and standing behind Him at His feet weeping. This is somebody that gets reconciliation. Yes, these are tears but I also submit to you that these are tears of unrestrainable joy. And you, if you read, if you look at the here, when it talks about she's weeping uh, and, and wetting his feet with her tears, it, it, it's just raining down. These tears are just raining down. She's just weeping uncontrollably. And, and, and she's standing behind him at his feet, weeping, and she began to wet his feet with her tears and kept wiping them with, with her hair, her head, and kissing his feet and anointing them. This is what it looks like when you understand what Jesus did in your behalf on that bloody cross in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. Unrestrained tears of repentance and joy, raw, 
open-hearted, uninhibited worship. That's how Christians worship. That's how we worship. We understand reconciliation. For though her sins were many, in eternity past, Jesus had set His heart upon her. Though her sins were many, He loved her with an everlasting love. Though her sins were many, He'd chosen her to be His bride. Though her sins were many, He came for her to reconcile, ransom, redeem, pardon, forgive, and save her. Add religion to this beautiful gospel of Jesus. It turned harlots into chaste. Chapter 11. And I wanted to tell you I'm done. Um, you know, <laughs> angels can't worship like us. Angels can worship like us. I mean, they can... being delivered. They don't know anything about that. They've observed it. They see it. But angels can't like us. Angels can't worship like us. We are forget- We are like this spiritual harlots. Amen? That's what the says. We're spiritual harlots. But not anymore. In Christ, we are chaste virgin bride. We're chaste virgin bride. From enemies to co-heirs, from eternal death and wrath to eternal uh, life and love. You remember I told you at the beginning when I was talking about wrath that it is eternal, it is terrible, and it is deserved. That's all true, but guess what? It's one more thing. It's escapable. It's escapable. By Jesus. Your religion is not going to do you any good. It's only by Jesus. It's only by genuinely coming to Jesus in faith, receiving what He's done for you on the cross, Receiving Him as Lord and Savior. That is the Gospel. That is the Biblical Gospel. God says, though your sins are as scarlet, they will be white as snow. Though they, they are as red as crimson, be full. Awesome Gospel. Awesome Savior. Listen, friends. Don't add anything. And listen, I want to challenge you, every Christian in here, I want to challenge you to live that gospel huge. Every day for the rest of your life. Every day for the rest of your life. You live reconciliation. You You shout reconciliation. You incarnate reconciliation. That's our exhortation tonight. Let's pray. Lord, forgive us. Forgive us. I know everyone in this room is guilty. I know I am. Of not worshiping like you like I should. Not loving you like I should. Not honoring like you like I should. When I really look into you and I see 
what it was I deserved. And then I see what it is you did. in our behalf is oh God forgive us if we've taken the cross lightly if it's just been of dogma to us it's just something we, we say it's just something we learn but oh God I pray you would help everyone in this, to get into our heart and to fall in love with Jesus all over again because we were children of wrath but now we're sons and daughters of Jehovah. And it's because of what he did. And oh God, help us to help us to appreciate that and to appropriate that. We love you, awesome God. Thank you for this gospel. Thank you for this Savior. In Jesus' name.